Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Michelle Ledette Henley and George Mahoney to the podcast to discuss defect elimination. We talk about how defect elimination is a process to empower your people to solve problems that typically are under $5,000 worth of budget. So definitely something that you can implement in your facility today. If you're listening to this in September of 2020, you need to sign up for the Leadership Launchpad Project. Signups close September 14th, 2020. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We don't know if we'll ever offer this again. And especially if we offer it again, it won't be at this price. You're definitely going to want to check that out. A few people have asked me about it, saying that they don't have any direct reports or they're a one man show at their consulting company. And they've said to me, you know, what's the value of this or or how is this even for me? And the answer I'll give you is I don't have direct reports either. And it's changed my life completely. The work that I've done here with Susan Hobson over the last year has changed my life completely. And I can't say what the benefits are for you because they're going to be completely different. But it sent my life in a different direction than where it would be. You're not going to want to miss out on it. The second thing I want to talk about is a few people have messaged me asking for maintenance and reliability help. I am opening up myself for one-on-one reliability consulting. So if you have any questions or you have any you know, work order data or KPIs that you want me to take a look at, I have some reliability consulting packages that are available. You can connect with me, either send me an email, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn and I'll send you the rates for that and you're welcome to connect with me so I can help you solve your maintenance and reliability problems. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the interview with Michelle Henley and George Mahoney. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Today, we have two special guests and we're going to be talking about defect elimination, a topic actually, funnily enough, that we haven't talked about yet on this show. So I'm pumped about this one. The first guest we got, a returning guest from last week, Michelle Henley from The Manufacturing Game. Michelle, how are you? Hey, good, Rob. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm looking forward to this one. And the next guest we have George Mahoney from Merck. George, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for having. Thanks for coming on. And and I guess, George, you're a little bit new to the audience. Did you want to give us a little bit about yourself? Like what what got you started in reliability, and how'd you get into defect elimination? Started in reliability. Actually, worked with my dad on his HVAC truck when I was 10 years old. So uh, he he started doing uh, heating and air conditioning. He pulled me on the truck, and I became obsessed with it ever since. And how'd I get it? 
into defect elimination, it's actually an interesting story. So we were struggling a little bit with our, I'd say our proactive maintenance program. I had a mechanic walk into my office and throw V-belts on my desk and say, <laughs> your PDM program is awful. It, it's, it's the worst. And we go, we look at the data and we realize, you know what, we called that this thing was going to fail, but we just never had the time to go replace that belt. So my best friend, he, he was also our PDM guru. He said, you know what, we got to figure out how to do precision maintenance. So I Google precision maintenance. I find this book. I think it's about, you know, the nuts and bolts of maintenance, but it happens to be, uh, don't just fix it, improve it. I read the book. I become obsessed with it. It's, it's talking to me. The book is reaching out to me as if it's my life. And I actually go and I start stalking the author, Winston Lede. I go to the IMC conference. I, I, I find him. I say, can we do this at Merck? And he says, no, I'm heartbroken. But then I talk to uh, his wife later on. And she says, are you kidding me? I can't believe he said that. We're definitely going to do it at Merck. They came, they played the game. And that's where I met Michelle. And the rest of the story writes itself. <laughs> so michelle you, you were part of that a little bit like you want to tell us about what did your end of the story look like well i i think i wasn't at that conference so i heard about it on the back end and my mom was mortified you know that uh that dad had, had been so dismissive um but once we got in and got started it, it's just been incredible working with george because he has such enthusiasm about defect elimination and and has so many great ideas about it that I think I've probably learned as much from, from George as, as he has from us. It's been great uh, several years working with him. <laughs> so maybe, maybe before we get really into the nuts and bolts of defect elimination, like what is a defect and what is defect elimination? Michelle, I'm going to let you cover the definition of a defect. You, have a, you do it very well. Yeah, so our, our definition of defect is anything that erodes value, reduces production, compromises your health, safety, or environmental performance, or creates waste. So it's a very broad definition. Anything that's not working the way it should would, would be a defect un, under our definition. And I would include in this defects that are in the equipment, but also defects that are in our processes and our practices as well. So it doesn't have to just be a, an equipment defect. If we um, aren't hiring the right people, not hiring people with appropriate skills, then we have a defect in our hiring process. If we have a bad procedure, then we have a, a defect in one of our processes. And so what I would say in terms of, of defect elimination is it's about making work go away. And I contrast that with defect removal, which is just finding a defect and taking it out of the system. With defect elimination, it's taking it out in a way where it doesn't keep coming back. It's not having the, the band-aid approach of let's, let's just get through the day and make this run. It's actually looking at where did this come from and how do we stop it from happening in the future so that we're not just doing work more efficiently, but we're making some of that work go away. And, and I guess one of the questions that came in from Bob actually was, how does it contrast with root cause analysis? Like, is it the same thing or is it something different? I'll give my theoretical answer and then I'll let George give a, a practical answer. But I see them as, as being um, part of the same thing. So part of, of doing good defect elimination is doing some form of, of root cause analysis, whether it's formal or informal. You're looking for the sources of the defects and you're looking for how do we make this problem go away in a way that it doesn't come back. Um, the difference where, that I see is, is defect elimination is also about the implementation. It's not just about finding the problems, but it's actually about taking the action to make them go away. Knowing Bob asked that question, I would say his definition and mine are probably pretty similar because Bob doesn't think an RCA is done 
when you identify the potential problems. The RCA is done when you take some action to, to correct the underlying issues. George, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, to me, I've done a lot of root cause analysis sessions, and usually the idea is, okay, it's great. We found what the root cause was. Good. Now what? And no one's willing to take that next brave step. And usually, in my experience, root cause analysis is done when the, the job's big. It's this giant thing. You have senior level me uh, leadership looking at it. Defect elimination. It's kind of like a, a mini root cause analysis. It's yeah, You can use some of the tools, maybe the five whys. Maybe that's about it. Most of the people really don't care. You know, They want to get to driving that improvement. They don't care the tool that you use to get there, but it really is all about action. It's not defect elimination if you've not only fixed it, but improved the situation for the next time. I guess for me, it almost sounds more like a Toyota Kata than it does of a root cause analysis. Yeah, I, I would link it more closely to Kata than a, than a formal RCA. Now, I'll say this, when we do it, we usually don't bring formal root cause analysis into it. But on the back end of it, well, we will have some RCA experts say, did we do this right? Did we come to the true root cause? What can we do better the next time? Sometimes we're okay with not getting to that fifth why. We'll get to the third why, but it's still better than getting to the first why or the second why. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I guess, like, let's, let's talk about the implementation piece a little bit. I mean, it's something that, from what I can see in industry and where I've worked as well, is like, it's really a weakness for us. Like, how, do, how does the defect elimination, like where, like, where are some of the keys to getting that stuff driven out, like getting the implementation through? For me and Michelle, you, you could, I know you probably don't want to talk about this too much, but I will. I feel like the, the thing that has to happen, it ha it's a non-negotiable thing, is you have to kick it off with the defect elimination game. You, you have to play the board game. Now, people don't want to play the game. You have grown people that don't like uh, Dungeons and Dragons. They don't want to play Monopoly at work. So you have to find ways to get them into the game. But the game, it's super critical because... It, it, I've failed at so many things in maintenance. I was the planning and scheduling lead at Merck for years, and no one ever wanted to use planning and scheduling. I was the, helping with that with PDM. No one wanted to do that. You play the game in two days, and everybody all, this, all of a sudden understands all this stuff. So while you're playing the game, you're getting this tacit knowledge. You're touching these poker chips. You are making emotional decisions with people. And during the game, just like if you play sports, you're getting these repetitions at eliminating defects from your system. So that when the game is done, you actually have to go out, find a real defect, eliminate it. So you've practiced it over and over again during a two-week period. So if you play the game, it almost does 90% of the work for you. They make teams during the game. You go out, you have to actually fix a defect. You come back and talk about what that defect is. So for me, that that, that's a critical, essential point to get people in that room working with each other. And then when you go out in real life, you've already done it 100 times together on a board game. So it's just that much easier. <laughs> so Michelle, maybe, maybe tell us about the game, like the manufacturing game, like what's the concept and what does it teach us? Yeah, so the, the game is it's a simulation. It actually started as a computer simulation and was adapted into a board game for some of the reasons that, that George talked about, that a lot of the strength of the process is people working together to solve these problems and getting a chance to do something physical. Even if it's moving poker chips, that's more physical than kind of clicking on a, on a keyboard and doing it alone. Um, now, I would say it's not the only way to, to do defect elimination. I think what it does well is it brings that why into context, that people understand not just what you're asking them to do or how you're asking them to do it, but they understand why what they do matters. You know, a lot of times you get, particularly frontline folks, they say, you know, I'm, I'm just a mechanic. And so what I do on a daily basis doesn't make 
a bit of difference. It, that's for the reliability engineers and the plant managers to solve, not my issue. In the game, they get a chance to see that all of those little things that they do every day, whether they're doing them correctly or incorrectly, those things add up to either make things much better or, or much worse, depending on what, what they're doing. Um, so I think there are other ways of doing it. The game is just a very easy way of doing it. Like George said, it, it kind of does a lot of the work for you. And I, I think of it like if you're trying to um, turn a screw, you know, if you have a power screwdriver, that's a much quicker way of getting it done. You can still do it with a manual screwdriver or if you're desperate, you know, a dime sometimes can be used as a screwdriver. It's just not the, not the quickest way to do it. And, and so if you're doing it a different way, you're going to have to put more time and more energy into getting people to understand the concepts and uh, more importantly, understand the why. And if people are listening, we'll give you a chance to plug it. Like where should they find more information on the manufacturing game? Uh, if they want more information, manufacturinggame.com is our website. So they can go there to, to see more information about it. George also has some um, presentations he's given where he's talked specifically about it. And I think that was what it, at IMC, George. Yep. So some of those are available online as well to hear George's specific experience with it. Perfect. <clears throat> so we got a question come in on the chat, George. And and it says, with all the different facilities within Merck, how hard and what advice can you give me for rolling out an organizational-wide defect and elimination plan? <laughs> Don't do it. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I think step number one is you got to make it great at one place. You, you got to make other people want to do it. And it's hard to do. And, and it's hard to sell people on playing a board game. It's hard to sell management on turning over and empowering things to the front line. So the way we did it, uh, we started inviting other people to our game from a different site. Just come on and come see it. If you hate it, don't worry about it. You never have to do it. But if you like what you're doing, if you like what you're doing in this game, let's bring it out to your site. We tried to find our shadow. So at, what we did in the first site is we developed the shadow network. So it's this group of people that we, they were, they were all a close little team. Uh, we'd call them into a conference room. We'd shut off all the lights, tell them, make sure nobody followed you in here. Okay, listen, you're a super special person. You believe what I believe. Let's make this happen together, right? So we did this at this one site and then it got bigger and bigger. Then what we started to do is talk to some other people that we felt we met. Maybe we met them at a conference. Maybe we, we just talked to them during a meeting once and said, look, we're doing this awesome thing. Are your mechanics frustrated? Yes. Are your operators frustrated? Yes. Okay, here's the answer. Come play this game. It's two days of your life. See what it looks like. And then we'd go make that same pitch to another facility. The, but I will admit it is hard. The, I would say another trick is don't use data. Do not go in there and say, we're going to reduce your CMs by 30% because nobody cares about data. You got to tell them stories. You got to show them pictures. You got to show them a frustrated mechanic and a happy mechanic and a before or an after picture that gives real tangible results to what's going on. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's back to, you know, Michelle, it's funny. We, we always end up talking about this stuff, but the, the extrinsic versus the intrinsic motivators, right? And, and it's like when we have these, these data-driven decisions, and like, hey, look at this graph. Look how much this graph is better. Like maybe it motivates people for like a day or for a minute or some people don't even care. But if you can actually sell that story of how it makes their lives better in some way, how it makes their job better, then they'll buy into, well, at least they'll give it a shot. And then, then you have to really walk the walk, right? Absolutely. I think that's been some of the challenges with trying to to take the successes from one location to another is that 
you need what I'll, I'll call a zealot for lack of a better word. You need a defect elimination zealot at each site that's doing the, the extra things to, to drive it and to get past the skeptics. And I, George, I can't remember, you wore what, was it, was it a Jets jersey or a, no, an Eagles jersey yep. to get a guy to, to, uh, to come to a, a workshop. And so it, it takes something beyond, well, I sent the email out and I don't know who's going to show up. It, it takes that extra effort. And I think that needs to be site specific because, you know, George knows the people at his site. He doesn't necessarily know the people at the, the other site. And so he doesn't have the personal influence at those locations that he has at his own location. And that's a barrier I think I see with like consultants and also with just reliability programs in general, where it's like that zealot for, you know, we're using that word now, like they end up leaving, they get another job, they retire, they, you know, whatever. And the program falls through the floor. And it's even with consultants, like it can be running well, and then their, their contract is up and they leave. Like, how do we sort of, I don't know, avoid that problem? Or, or is there a way to sort of keep that going if they leave? I think you build more zealots. I, when people start doing this, they become obsessed with it, as I am, just because it, it gets rid of all the problems that you have if you're a frontline worker. And if, if they care much that much about it, they're going to fight and scratch and claw to keep it. They're not going to care about some fancy CMMS program. They're, they're going to care about how is my day at work? Is it good or is it bad? Can I eliminate these problems in front of me or are you going to stop me from doing it? Love it, love can it, you love talk it. a little bit about the shadow network that that you guys created at your site? Because I think that leads into it as well. So yeah, you, first off, you can't do it alone, right? You're going to fail if you try and do it alone. And the reason we got it into our first site is that we were trying to improve our relations with our union. So we had a strong union, very technically skilled. We wanted to show them, look, we, we hear your voice. We want to do something with you. And what they what they really wanted was, hey, get out of our way. We got all the answers. We can figure this stuff out. So the way we pitched it was, okay, to this key group of guys, we, we have the answer to this problem. We're going to get out of your way. We're going to check our egos at the door. We have to do it with this hokey board game. You know, you guys have all the answers, but why don't you just play with us? And you can teach us about maintenance while we're playing. You can teach us how we're screwing up your lives. So we, we got that crew in. And then as we're playing, we're starting to look at the people that are really getting it and what we call the influencers, who can make people's moods go up or down, who have the most voices. So as I said before, we started using this shadow network. Uh, we called them in. We'd have this meeting. We made them feel special about being part of the group. We told them, don't tell anyone. Uh, even in the email, it said, make sure you're not followed. We'd say, we want you to do this. Are you willing to do it? Well, who am I? How can I possibly be a part of this great effort? Look, all we need you to do is do your job and get these bugs out of the system. And what we started to do after a while was pick people that helped us in certain areas. So we needed a mechanic. We needed somebody in quality. We needed somebody in procurement. We needed somebody in safety. We started hand selecting people in areas that we needed help with. And we, we kind of, we use this puppy dog approach. If you don't like it, you don't have to be a part of it. Why don't you just try it out? But they got on a defect elimination team. They saw results instantly and then they became hooked. And what we do with this shadow network is we meet once a week, we talk about every defect that we eliminated. It was a fun meeting. You know, people hate meetings. I hate meetings more than anyone, but this was, here's a picture of a defect we eliminated. Here's another picture of a defect we eliminated. All right, did we do the right thing? Is there any other place we can do this? All right, cool. We can't get this one done. Who can help us out? All right, we need to bring someone else into the shadow network. It was almost like, uh, for lack of a better word, like an underground mafia inside of the company, but doing good things for, for the right reasons. They were eliminating every barrier that we had to get work done. <sighs> 
<laughs> if you're on this meeting now, you're part of the reliability Illuminati. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Michelle, you know, you mentioned before the call that you have a good framework for defect elimination. Like, do you want to give it to us? Like, where should we start? What, what does it look like? So it, it really is, is dirt simple. And so let me, uh, I think one of the things that people get hung up on in defect elimination is they think it needs to be this big, gigantic something, and, and it's not. It's going out and finding defects. A great place to look for the types of defects we're talking about are any kind of recurring work, something that happens frequently. Even if it's very small, it doesn't cost a lot of money or take much time. If it's happening often, that's a great target. Um, verify that it meets the boundaries, and I'll come back to that and, and talk about that in just a second. After that, put together a cross-functional team, and that's really important because you wanna get that uh, multi-disciplined view of, of what the issue is. You also just want to get those people working together so that they have a better understanding on a personal level of what other groups inside the organization do and how maybe their actions are contributing to problems over in somebody else's area. Um, look for the defect sources. This can be done formally if that's something that your organization does, but it also can be done very informally with kind of, you know, three whys, five whys, something like that but make sure that, that they have an understanding of we're not just looking to patch this and move on, we're looking to make this better. Don't just fix it, improve it. Um, once the defect is eliminated, then it comes down to documenting the improvements and tracking the savings. And then most importantly, I think telling the stories. So like George said, it's not just about the numbers, although you need the numbers, um, it's, it's more about having the stories of, of the successes that have a personal touch to them that people can really relate to so that you connect with people, not just intellectually, but, but emotionally as well, because a lot of our decision making is based on emotion. As much as we like to think that we're Mr. Spock and it's all logic, uh, we have our human half. And, and so we are driven by, by emotions um, fairly frequently in, in our decision making. And so it's important to tap into that with the stories. So let me double back to boundaries. And this is, this is, I think, a critical part when you're talking about management within the organization and what they need to be doing in terms of, of defect elimination. Um, it's important that the, the people doing the work have some freedom. They get to do it their way, not just they're doing what you told them to do. Because again, we want that authentic buy-in, not just compliance. And so setting the boundaries is really important because what you're doing is saying everything that's inside of this fence that we create is fair game. And you can set that fence to be as tight as you want, but once you set it, it's very important that you let the folks doing the defect elimination work operate freely within it so they don't feel like there's somebody kind of over their shoulder micromanaging them. And so when you're looking at boundaries, you know, you can set up how much time they're allowed to spend on it. I recommend no more than 90 days. Uh, you can set how much money they can spend. Typically we say $5,000 and this is outside money, so not internal labor costs. We say $5,000, but we've had companies say $1,000. we have had one company say zero. They were in a situation where they just didn't have the cash to do anything. And uh, they set that limitation of $0, which surprisingly didn't really limit what people could do. Um, you can set what areas are, are okay and not okay. So some organizations say, you know, we have something to address safety issues and we don't want to interfere with that program. Maybe it's a union driven program. So they say it can't be just safety. Now it can have a safety component to it, but it, it has to have something beyond safety just to make sure we're not interfering with this other program. Um, so again, just setting those boundaries and saying, these are the things that, that we're willing to kind of live with and inside of that fence, you guys are kind of cut loose. We'll get out of your way as George says <laughs> and, and let you do your thing. 
So George, can you walk us through some of the boundaries that you set for your, like for your defect elimination start? Yeah, some of the, we couldn't break our union contract rules. So I couldn't have a pipe fitter doing electrical work. We had given them a threshold of money. So they couldn't require any capital money. It couldn't break any of our environmental or GMP or quality uh, regulations that we had in place. And for us, it, there were two other things. One was it had to be done in 90 days, like Michelle talked about, or at least that was our guideline. And the last one was that it had to be a cross-functional team. You could not go out as the Lone Ranger and go do this by yourself because part of defect elimination, I think it's one of the biggest parts is that you are breaking down silos by having this cross-functional team work together. I believe Winston called it a socio-technical network. So if you and I have some sort of debate over who's a better football team, uh, the Giants or the Jets, we're never ever going to agree. But if we go look at that pump together and figure out what caused that problem, we have a fighting chance to agree on the same thing. Now if we're bringing in somebody from quality and somebody from safety and someone from the uh, procurement, now we've just expanded these these boundaries that we had before and we've knocked down those walls between those groups. So we, we forced it. No matter what happened, you had to have a cross-functional team. When we started, we had these heroes with this big S on their chest and a cape, and they said, I eliminated 15 defects. Is this good? No, we just lost. You didn't educate anybody else. You didn't, you didn't bring the person who broke it with you to figure out why they're going to keep breaking this thing over and over again. One of our biggest examples was uh, door handles. So we had door handles breaking because our janitorial staff was sticking mops inside of the hinges. So the carpenters just kept fixing the door frames over. Sorry, it was door frames, not door handles, door frames over and over and over again. And until we brought the, the janitorial staff in and said, why are you doing this? They said, well, uh, you know, the door stops that you gave us don't fit underneath the door because the door is too high off the floor. Or, you know, we're not stupid. There's just no other way to hold the door open. Oh, okay. Now we figured it out as a cross-functional team. I'm sure that one happened in Steve's office when they're cleaning it three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, maybe, maybe just so, so like I'm aware, like you say 90 day target for the elimination, like typically is like, how long does it take? It depends on the defect. Some go over most go under. We use it as a gauge. We use the 90 days to say, maybe this was too big. Uh, maybe we were a little too crazy about this, or maybe we have too many defects. So I know people would like to know about, uh, you know, what kind of met metrics we use. One of the metrics is what percentage of our defect elimination jobs are getting done in under 90 days. And if we have too many in the backlog, we have to pump the brakes and say, guys, let's slow down what we're finding. We have to actually fix the stuff that we have. So again, they're not all going to be 90 days. It's just a general guideline to get it done as fast as possible. So when you say like 90 days, you mean like identification all the way to elimination. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess digging into those metrics, I mean, like, so what are some of the other ones you measure? Like, what do you think are important ones if people are going out on this journey? Like, what should they be measuring? So Michelle, I'll give you the ones that we used at Merck and then you can tell me if, if I'm missing any of them. So one thing we measured was percent of corrective maintenance work orders that are defect elimination work orders. And the target is surprisingly 1%. So what Winston Day had found out was that that 1% was the magic number. If you hit that, you're going to drastically bring down your total percentage of, of all CMs. So if you think about it, this is, this is a numerator and a denominator problem. Most people just try and eliminate as many defects as they can, but they're forgetting about all the new bugs coming in. So if we can reduce the, the denominator, that volume of CMs, we win already. 
So if I just do one defect elimination work order and there's only 100 CMs, I win. If there used to be 10,000 CMs, I've already won by just doing one defect elimination work order. So we looked at that 1%. We also looked at the number of people on defect elimination jobs that were completed. So we had some back and forth about, hey, let's, let's figure out a people, let's reward people for the biggest defect elimination jobs. We said, no, we just care about repetition and volume of getting these bugs out because that's gonna stop new ones from coming in. So we literally tracked how many people were on every single defect elimination job. And then we'd start highlighting who were our top performers with the most defect elimination projects under their belt that were completed. Then we, we did look at it. I know someone made a comment about ROI. We absolutely, we had teams of people behind every one of these work orders looking at what was the cost savings and cost avoidance for each one of these projects. So, and then we meet with finance once a quarter and say, here's the jobs we did. Here's what we think we're avoiding. And here's what we know we are saving. And then we started to look at percent of CM reduction. I think in a, a five-year period, we reduced the CMs by about 30%, and we reduced our maintenance and labor costs by $6 million a year through defect elimination. Now, we tracked what we saved through defect elimination, but then we also tracked other stuff. And it was like, okay, we said we saved uh, $5 million total through the defect elimination jobs. Why are we saving $6 million a year? And it was because people stopped breaking stuff. We stopped adding new CMs to the backlog. Love it. Those are, I mean, those are incredible results. Well, and I would add to what George said that this is in a facility where they were dealing, there is no production. So it's, well, uh, minor, I guess, production, but they're dealing with, with facilities management. So they're able to save that kind of money um, just maintaining the facility uh, at, at this particular location. This doesn't take into account if you were in a production facility, all of the, the production improvements that you would get as well. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I always, I always make the joke, Michelle, that if you walk into a facility and you don't fall over a hundred thousand or a million dollars, you're doing something wrong. And so, <laughs> True. Um, I, I guess, I guess, you know, we got a question in, in the chat here. How many of the defects your folks on the front line identify are actually also in the CMMS? Are there any, are there any defects that you're not, you're not finding in the CMMS, but people are just like running repairs or fixing them just ad hoc. So uh, I'd say yes. I'm sure uh, a mechanic will argue every day I do defect elimination. And, and you're right. For us to officially be counted as a defect elimination job, what we did is we documented it in our CMMS. So the first four letters of the, the work order, we wrote DJFI. And it had to meet our rules. So sometimes they were already in the backlog and we would just change the title to DJFI because it was already in the backlog. We didn't need to write another work order for it, but sometimes someone would just come to my desk angry and say, I got something for you, let's go. And we'd go out and then we add it into the backlog. Perfect. So like talking about the CMMS, I mean, you know, you mentioned work orders, like is there anything else that we should be identifying in our CMMS or is that just basically the process is just like issuing work orders or maybe even analyzing the data that comes in currently? So I'll speak for Merck and then Michelle, let you, you could speak for other companies, but I'll say for us, we didn't try to go into the CMMS and say, hey, look, we found 50 pump failures. We need to go do defect elimination on pump failures. We wanted the mechanics or the operator to be angry 
I, I wanted the med. You know, med is, is the best thing because they're going to take action. What are you mad about? Let's go out and find what you're mad about. Now, after they fix the defect, we'll go into the backlog and say, do we have any similar issues that we can go and take this ball and run with it? But for us, we literally use the CMS to track our progress, but we use the real life emotions and again, anger of a mechanic or an operator to go, let's go fix this problem right now. Yeah, my experience is fairly similar that you really want to go with where the, the passion is. Because again, it's, it's not about fixing that one particular problem. It's about creating more zealots that are big defect elimination fans. And so going after the things that, that they're angry about, that they're passionate about, is going to be your best bet. Um, the way that we have used CMMS data is sometimes you get a group um, if you don't have somebody like George kind of spearheading it, that they're like, well, we just can't think of anything. And so having a list of here are some repeat failures. All it does is jogs their memory. We don't ever assign saying, you know, because this is the number one issue in the CMMS, you must go work on this. We just say, hey, here are five things that look like maybe they could use some attention. Are any of these interesting to you? Um, the other thing that I think George has done really well is using their existing CMMS without having to write any other code or anything like that to keep track of the defect elimination projects. Because you do want to basically be able to see that you're making some progress. So it's important to know how many you've done, how many are out there, how many are still open and things like that. So just by using the short description and adding that DJFI, don't just fix it on the front end, allowed them to run reports without having to do a bunch of reprogramming of the CMMS and adding a new something or other. And you know, you could just use the existing system that you had. And I think that's really important with defect elimination in, in the way that I talk about it, because I'm talking about small projects, lots and lots and lots of small projects. And so no one of these projects is going to justify a big spend on the IT side. And so if you're spending tens of thousands of dollars to create a system to keep track of it, the weight of that is going to kill the whole program. So it's important that you have something that's quick, easy, hopefully something that already exists that you can just take advantage of. Awesome. George, could you give us an example of maybe like a defect that, that you brought through to the end? Like, is it just something as simple as, as, repairing something or, or what, what kind of like, what's a, like an average defect? So uh, I'd say in, in my time doing defect elimination, I think we're getting close to a thousand defect elimination projects that we solved. Some very small, some, some relatively big. Here, here's a good example. So we had uh, this air handler on the roof of a building. It's New Jersey, it's freezing. And all, for whatever reason, these motors on this air handler would always, they'd always go out and like, February, right, while you're freezing. So the mechanics were upset about it. So we go outside to this air handler. There's six motors on this unit. Two of them are the primary. The other four are the secondary. What was happening when the two primary ones were running, they were actually, the air from those motors, those fans, was spinning the other motors. And then when those motors started, they were actually spinning the wrong way, and it was causing the bearings to prematurely fail. So these guys are like, I'm sick of climbing up on this roof. We have to get a permit to come up here. It's on top of a laboratory building. We have to make sure they're not doing experiments. How can we stop this from happening? And just one guy thought, hey, let's put a barometric damper on the other motors so that they don't spin until they're actually running. Boom, problem solved. We fabricated the, the dampers, we put them on, and now we, we don't have to fix these things every year. Now it's a, you know, every few years, but it's, it's still reduced the, the frequency of that defect. And, and let me say, to, to contrast that with just planned maintenance, and, and what makes it defect elimination is that they made work go away. So you can imagine a scenario where you would say, you know, this happens on a pretty regular basis. It causes the bearings to wear out prematurely at about this rate. 
So let's have a PM where we go up and just change those bearings out before we actually run to failure. And we can be much more efficient in doing the work. That's good planned work. That's efficient work. It's absolutely something you should do. It's not defect elimination. The work that they did saying, what's causing this? Why, why do we have the premature bearing failure? And what can we do to prevent that from happening? That's what makes this a defect elimination project in, in my definition. Michelle, that, that's an awesome point because I think, you know, the mantra that we love to use was get the bugs out. And even I love PDM, but sometimes PDM is looked at as just let's look at the bugs. Let's hey, there's a cool bug. You know, that, that, that bearing is hot. Uh, this fans, this, this, uh, this shiv is uh, misaligned. Okay, cool. What are we going to do about it? Nothing. Or we're just going to put it back in the way we put it before. If you are not getting the bugs out, then you're not doing defect elimination. And that was really our complete and total mantra was, if you're, are you doing this? Yeah. Is it getting the bugs out? No. Well, then you're doing the wrong thing. It's kind of like uh, Southwest Airlines. They want to be the cheapest airline. Yeah, well, I want uh, Beyonce to come sing and I want to serve filet mignon. Is it saving us money? No. Well, then we can't do it. it was, if, you're not, if you're not getting the bugs out, then this is the totally wrong thing to do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I guess I kind of wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of you know, what, what are some of the mistakes that people make with defect elimination? Like, is it something where they're doing too many? They're not, they're not following through the actions. Like Michelle, maybe you want to kick us off on this one. I would say the number one mistake is that people pick projects that are too big um, something that they can't get their hands around. That's one of those. It, yes, it's a big problem at the site, but at this level is probably unsolvable. You know, you need capital money, you need big resources and so on. So that's the thing that we push the most is find something that's within your sphere of control. George talks about it as pick the dog you can walk, right? If, if uh, you can't walk a great dame, but if you have a little yappy dog, then that's easier to handle. And I think people feel like that's cheating, you know, that, oh, that's not that big of a deal. That doesn't matter. But when you add all of those things up, it's every bit as impactful as the one big issue. And a lot of times by getting all of that little junk out of the way, it gives you the time and attention you need to then go solve those, those big issues using a different process. I would say that that's the number one issue I find with where defect elimination doesn't work. They're just going for projects that are way too big. Uh, what, what's your experience, George? Michelle, I 100% agree. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to one of the games we had. We had a very angry electrician, and he said he wanted every electrical closet fixed in the entire site. And we have a huge site. We have 80 buildings in it. I said, no, we're going to fix one. He's like, one? I said, yeah, we're going to fix. I can guarantee you we're going to fix that door. I can't fix them all, but we're going to fix one door. We're going to do this together. And it, at first, it, it, you kind of gain traction through getting those small wins because you need to gain momentum. But I, I think the on the flip side of that is that you might also fail because people don't like small. People like the big capital project. They like the new fancy toy. You know, you have to be okay with being bored with the little things. You have to be obsessed with the little things. And I think that's where most people, they want instant gratification. They want to do one DJFI and see that they have world-class planning and scheduling numbers, but it's just not going to work that way. You have to be almost, I, I, you have to be obsessed with just getting rid of these little defects every single day. And I mean, on that note, that's oh, where the ahead. stories can really come in because it makes it makes the small it, it allows you to see the the heroism in the small defect removal. Uh, it gives you a chance to see it's this isn't just fixing you know a, a, a door frame, right? It's telling the story about how it, the carpenters and the janitors and they didn't realize what was causing it, and turns out there was another problem. I mean that's much more interesting than 
yeah, I fixed the door hinges or I fixed the door, the door frames. And so telling those stories helps, helps people realize how big those small things are. And I guess on that note, I mean, you went down kind of the same route where I was going to ask was like with those small wins, like how do we get leadership or executives to buy into these small wins when, you know, like the financial savings not going to be there. It's not like we're going to improve availability by 10% or, you know, like these big numbers that they're looking for. Like, how do we get that buy-in? So Michelle kind of, she, cause for me, defect elimination is my, it's my one and only thing. So she's kind of talked me into, you, you kind of, you have to be able to do both, right? You have to run your RCAs, your RCMs, your FEMEAs on one side of the fence for the highly critical things that people need to look at. And then from the ground floor, work on these much smaller activities. Now for me, I've always, when I'm selling this, I, I tell my own version of a wacky story and I won't go through the whole thing. But the, the basic premise is, is that as Michelle alluded to, all of these little gnats are distracting you from focusing on what is the most important thing. And in the story I'm talking about, there's literally a guy, he's about to have a barbecue on uh, this nice weekend and his grill won't start. And if, you, if you're doing any sort of black belt project or RCM, it's well, why isn't the grill working? Let's do this big uh, RCA on the grill. And it really turned out that it was, they left garbage by the grill and bugs got into the Venturi tube. And that was what the reason for it was. And then you put in all these other programs, you have a storm for new Venturi tubes. You have a, an energy conservation program because you're making extra hamburgers because there's bugs getting on your, your barbecue. But really it's, it's the little stupid thing that caused all these gnats to come in the first place. So for me, it's just, you have to try and, somehow tell a good story to convince them that this all the, the little gnats are getting in the way of the big stuff. Well, I would say another, another piece of it is that you're not asking for big resources to do this either. And so you're not having to, you know, convince somebody to, to invest, you know, half million dollars in doing this. It, and you're not taking away the reliability engineers and people like that. You're saying, hey, let the people who are out there doing the work anyway do it the way that they've always wanted to do it. It's, you're more just asking senior leadership to get out of the way, right? It's not that they have to come in and lead the charge. They just need to not be a problem, not be a distraction, not get in the way of it. That's a hard thing to ask, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess maybe, maybe that's another question. So like what percentage would you say basically you could solve with almost like zero budget? like with just time of, of employees? I think for us, it was, it was almost everything. You know, that if you go, if for the most part, nobody really knows, right? If you, if you're a manager of a, of a big facility, there's probably a thousand work orders a week. Do you really know where all that money is going? You know, if the guy goes to the storm and buys a, a shiv and a belt, do you know he really needed that shiv and the belt? Nobody knows, right? Somebody might know, but not everybody knows. So for the most part, as long as you didn't need capital, we just gave them the extra time to do the work. And then people will say, well, how do you get all this extra time? Because they have it. In a reactive maintenance facility, you're waiting all the time. You're waiting for permits. You're waiting for parts. You're waiting for your, the other mechanic to come across. There's a lot of waiting going on. Well, when you get defect elimination, you just add a little extra time and these guys care about it. So they do it while they would have been waiting. They're still charging you four to six hours or eight hours for a work order anyway, but now they're doing a little more work than they were doing before because they're actually energized to do it. Yeah. I think, you know, 
combining it with the repair work. So in the example that, that George gave about the bearings on the unit on, on the roof, you know, they're going up there to re replace the bearings anyway. They're going up there to do the work anyway. What does it cost to take the extra time to say, you know what, why? Why is this happening? And is there something else we can do? And then when you come up with the solution, again, if you're already doing the work to replace the bearings, doing the extra work to make sure this doesn't keep happening really is, is pretty small uh, compared to the overall cost of the job. Love it, love it, love it. Now, George, you can kick us off on this one. Like, what are some of your top tips for someone who's, who's maybe they're, they're listening to this, they want to get into defect el elimination. Like, what are some of your top tips? So tip number one, this is what I use for everyone in the shadow network, is read the Don't Just Fix It, Improve It book. And what I would tell people is, if you don't like the book, I'm going to go stand against that wall and you can throw it at me. I, I will <laughs> let you throw this book in my head. So if, if you read the book, everyone who's ever read the book said, oh my God, this is my life. I mean, they did an unbelievable job of portraying the life of every single maintenance manager or supervisor who's working in, in this reactive domain. Get the book. Then somehow, it, you know, I, I think it's always good to have allies, even if you want to reach out to Michelle or me to, to help t tell the story of what we've been through. It helps if you need to pitch this to, to people at your site. But because then step two is you have to play the game. And it's not easy. For me, I've, as Michelle said, I had to wear an Eagles jersey. I'm a Giants fan. You know, you have to, to beg people to come. You have to do at favors. Least it wasn't a Patriots jersey. <laughs> I almost had to do that in Boston, but I, I didn't go that far. Uh, so you, ha you have to get people to play the game. And I, I think if you can get union leadership on your side before the game starts, that was our biggest win. We had the union leadership. They wanted what we wanted. We believed in the same thing. That's what kicked it off. Once you kick it off, I think it's easy other than doing a great job of broadcasting your success. You have to believe in this stuff. There's a good story of uh, Kanye West, take it for what it's worth. But somebody walked into Kanye West's house and there was a gigantic picture of Kanye West. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, if I don't love me, who, can, who else can love me? So if, you, if you're not preaching defect elimination and loving it, then who else is going to love it? So you have to do an unbelievable job of just selling these stories over and over and over again. And then the last thing is I'd say, don't you, well, there's two more things. One, you need a shadow network that, you know, that if you think about this hero's journey, it, it's detailed in the book, but there's going to be some hard times. There's going to be times where you want to quit. You need a strong ally. I was lucky. I had a lot of strong allies at the first site we did this at. And when I was ready to quit, they were, what are you crazy? You believe in, we all believe in this stuff. We need this. They pull you back up. So you need to have that shadow network working with you. Don't try and do it by yourself. Oh. And I was also lucky I had Michelle, her dad, her mom, her whole family was, they were mentoring me throughout the process because every problem I had, they would tell me, oh, we did this at this site. Oh, we did this at this site. They hooked me up with people from other companies. So I would say to other people, if you, if you need help, talk to Michelle. They have the resources everywhere. Love it. Michelle, how about you? What are some of your top tips? Uh, George hit on, on a lot of them. Um, I would say again, uh, keeping the, the project small. So coming up from a, a, if you're talking about the managers, what should they be doing? Coming up with those boundaries that are, are going to create the success and ones that, that you can live with. I would say the other thing that, that again, from a management standpoint can be done is come up with what's the inspiration for, for change. And so to me, there's always the fallback of it's about a better day at work. And I, I think that works well. But if there are some other reasons that things need to change at the organization, be willing to share those things and come up with a simple way of doing it, not a, 
you know, here's a, a eight page email that you have to read to understand what's going on in the company, but, you know, explain, is it, is it something that where we're under threat that if we don't improve, then we've got some issues or is it an opportunity that we're trying to pursue that if we can get better, there are things that we can do that we couldn't do before. Um, but it's gotta be inspiring. It can't just be a, a chart that shows the numbers, because that, that doesn't inspire people, but come up with the story, and from a management perspective, be willing to share it over and over and over again, so that people understand that need for change, and then the defect elimination process is the mechanism for change, where they can actually participate, rather than just being a spectator. Love it. We got, we got a question in the chat. Um, Michelle, is, is there a separate defect elimination game that's not manufacturing specific? So we have variations on the game. Um, we've worked with uh, companies that like pipeline companies that move product from point A to point B so they don't really manufacture. Um, mostly with those, we've worked with utility companies as well. Um, so that's not exactly traditional manufacturing. And uh, that works fairly well. And, and you know, even working with George with facilities management, where they're not producing a product, they're, they're keeping a site up and running is a little bit different than traditional manufacturing. Typically what we do is a lot of times it's just changing the words, making sure we're using the words that are right for that given environment. And in fact, an interesting story, years ago, we were approached uh, through a system dynamics conference by somebody from um, I think from NSA, so the, the National Security Administration or agency within the US. So it's some of the, the spy guys. And so they said, you know, we want to create, this was not too long after 9-11, they said, we want to create some sort of a game that's going to help, help us cooperate between the agencies, because that was one of the big failings with 9-11, is each agency had a piece of the information, but they never got together and, and put it all together. So they said, can you come run the game just so that some of our guys can see this is what we want to do, and then we're going to design our own game. So we did that, and, and during the debrief, I thought the conversation was really going to be about game elements and how you make that work and so on. They actually made connections to what they do, the intelligence community, with the game itself. And they said, you know, for us, a breakdown is blah, blah, blah. For us, planned work is. For us, defect elimination is. So they were, you know, the, the foundations are, are pretty basic, and I've, I've yet to find an environment where the basics didn't, didn't apply with just a little bit of um, work in the words. See, you heard that everyone, the reliability Illuminati is real. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're, we're wrapping up here. So George, do you have anything to plug? Like people are listening, where can they find you? Should do you have a website? Should they connect with you? Where can they find you? LinkedIn is the best place to connect with me. I, I will absolutely answer anything on LinkedIn. Perfect. So George Mahoney, his, LinkedIn, if you're listening to this on the podcast, his LinkedIn info will be in the podcast notes. So check that one out. Michelle, how about you? So LinkedIn's a good one for me. Also our website, so manufacturinggame.com. Um, we might be at SMRP if that happens in October. Um, I'm hoping that if they don't do in-person, they at least do virtual. So we'll, we'll definitely be a part of, of whatever it is that, that SMRP National Chapter does. And I would also like to encourage people, if, if you're interested in doing this, get in touch with George. He's, he's fantastic, obviously very enthusiastic about it and has a lot of the practical experience and loves talking about <laughs> defect elimination. So he'd be happy to, to uh, talk to whoever you need him to talk to, to just bring that outside perspective in. Love it, love it, love it. No, I really appreciate you guys coming on today. I, I had fun, so. 
So that was fun. George, thanks for coming today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Michelle, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Rob. I enjoyed it. It's uh, one of my favorite, favorite topics and good to see George after all yes. this time. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and we'll, we'll wrap up a little.